everyone, welcome back to another awesome episode of Professional Idiocy. Uh, this one's going to be a little different because my hosts, my co-hosts were busy today, so I felt like a nice one-on-one interview would be adjustable, at least. Um, I'm James, I use he, they pronouns, and I am super excited to be here. I am joined by the lovely uh, Luis Loza. <laughs> Hello, thanks for having me. Um, I guess I should say hi, I'm Luis Loza, he, him. I'm a developer at Paisa. Awesome. So Luis, what does a typical day-to-day look like for you? Oh boy, uh, it depends. Um, I think it'll be easier to explain what a developer does uh, because there's just a lot to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it. With our books, specifically for me, the Lost Omens line of books, uh, what a developer is doing is basically being kind of the director, being in charge of the entire product. I am there at the beginning concepting a book, putting the ideas together later than I'm outlining it and then assigning it to, to authors say, hey, here's our book. We want you to write, you know, 100 pages on, I don't know, Knights of Last Wall. That's an example that's coming out soon. Um, and I assign that book, get everyone lined up for the project. Once the writing is in, I take that writing, I develop it, as, as we call it, I run it through an edit pass and make sure continuity makes sense and try to clean up mechanics and make sure all the voice fits kind of together and all sounds like the same kind of writing. Uh, and then I hand that off to our editors. They give it an editing pass, it goes to our art team that lays out the book. It comes back to us. I clean it up in the layout process. And then finally the book is shipped off. Thing is we're doing three to five books at any state within that timeline at a given oh God. time. So Knights of Last Wall is just about to finish up. Um, I have one book that is in development period right now, one that's off to edit, and another book that I'm outlining at the moment for the future, which is going to be assigned here in the, in the next week or so. So it's, I'm in that timeline in multiple spots, just depending on which book I'm on. Have you ever gotten like tripped up based on like what book you were working on at the time? So um, like, let's say you were like working on Lost Open's Ancestry Guide and then you accidentally were like thinking about a different book during the same time and just mix up the developmental order. Thankfully, I don't think I've had that problem at all really so far um, <laughs> because the the spacing works out in such a way that I'm kind of focused on like development for a few weeks while it's off to editing, for example, right? We're, while one of the books is off to editing. So it'll come back from the editing period. So I, I have to look at it again, just in time as I finish off this other thing. So I can kind of go into one phase to another, to, to the next without doing like two or three books all at the same time. I'm not doing development and layout stuff and art stuff and outlining all in the same day. I tend to be like, okay, this week's all outlining, next week's all development next week's all you know post layout stuff things like that awesome so what makes the lost omens line so unique to pathfinder well if you were around for pathfinder first edition uh you'll remember that the rule books were very setting neutral they weren't really talking about galarian in any way you know we have the advanced players guide ultimate magic all those have cool rules options and they work really well with the Galarian setting and the Lost Omen setting. 
but they weren't specifically saying, oh, if you take this archetype, it means you represent a character that's from the Mwangi experience or one from Taldor or whatever. It's just, hey, you're a cool magic warrior or you're a cool, uh, you know, spy or stuff like that. Uh, and then the more setting focus books, the campaign setting line was really just setting material, a lot of stuff that was great for GMs, but not a lot of rules options. We also had a player companion book, which did use Galarian stuff, uh, but it was pretty much all rules options. It was hard to contextualize a lot of the things. Uh, we'd give you a bunch of new archetypes and give you a, a sentence or two, a paragraph or so that says, hey, this paragraph represents an archetype that is found in the shackles, the end, and then give you the, the rules. So the Lost Omens line gets to have the best of all of those worlds. We are presenting you rules with the setting context and giving you a lot of setting material uh, in addition to that. So if you look at a book like the Ancestry Guide, normally in first edition, that might've just been a bunch of new ancestries and some basic information like their physical traits and religion and alignment stuff, kind of like you see in the core rule book. Instead, we get to give you an extra two pages to say, all right, here's where they live. Here's uh, the kind of culture that they have. Here's the customs that they have. And then give you rules that support the, the setting material or are inspired based on the, the setting material that we have included in there. Have you ever run into like any challenges when it came to developing for like a specific setting when it came to like archetypes and such? No, I, I came on to the Paizo team pretty late in the game for Pathfinder first edition. I, my first day at Paizo, I was getting all set up. I had my office and, and, and everything, my computer. I was told, hey, here's a few things. And about halfway through the day, Adam Daigle, who was my boss, uh, comes by and says, oh, by the way, closes the door. I need to show you something. This can't go anywhere. And shows me that, hey, we're doing a Pathfinder second edition. Um, <laughs> so with early on, I was not worried so much about a lot of the uh, archetype setting, you know, rules and setting kind of getting merged together too often. There wasn't any trouble with that because we were just kind of closing down on first edition. And by the time we were actually getting uh, wheels turning on, on second edition stuff, that game was intentionally being written, being, being designed to integrate both of those together. So going forward, you know, I did a little bit of first edition stuff and then everything else going forward was already accounting for the fact that yes, it's gonna include setting material. It's gonna talk about the setting stuff and we encourage it. We want that to happen because that's the kind of game we wanna present going forward. So it's very easy to be like, well, next time we do archetypes you know they're going to run a page two pages or whatever but we're going to allocate this much space to explain how much is in the setting how it's connected to the rest of the world and you know it, it's a lot more forethought going into it have you found that developing for second edition when it came to like these settings has been easier compared to first edition um i partially so the one of the great things is that it's the same setting for first edition and second edition. Like it's still Galarian. Obviously the timeline has been advanced 10 years. Um, but I went in to the first edition stuff. I joined up knowing a lot of lore, a lot of the, the setting material already because I've been playing the game pretty much since it came out, since, since Pathfinder first edition had come out. So I, I had grown to know the world very well. And by the time second edition rolls around, when we are making some kind of big changes, updating the timeline and stuff, because I am where I am in the company, I, I'm running, I, I'm co-running the, the, 
the Lost Omens line with, with Eleanor, uh, we kind of get to steer the ship a bit. So anything that needs to be done, we get to at least contribute to the final call, final say on, on what, what the setting is. So working with it is, I guess, a little easier in second edition because we can kind of just say, actually, you know what? This is the, the direction that we're going to go with or, or we're going to throw this old thing away and, and, and whatnot. We don't have, we're not beholden to uh, what came in the past. And we're not, it's not that we're not answering to anyone at Paizo, but you know, we, we are near the top. We, we are getting to make those kind of big decisions that, that swing the setting in, in particular ways, which means that anything we don't want to deal with, we can sometimes just be like, no, that doesn't exist anymore. It's thrown out or we, we, we uh, change it. So, you know, this person who was ruling here, Suddenly they died and now someone else is in charge because we decided that it would be a, a better fit for the setting. Have you seen with, okay, so way that Guns and Gears is like structured is mm -hmm. that you have obviously the gear section and then the gun section and then a whole bit on Arcadia. But even in the gears and a gun section, there are whole bits on Arcadia. Can you speak to a little bit about why it is important to put like actual setting stuff into like major books like that? Partially to explain how this all fits. As I mentioned with the first edition stuff, we would create archetypes. And a lot of the time they would map pretty well to the setting. You know, we could say, hey, there's uh, this archetype that ends up being very close to the Eagle Knights uh, of Andorin. And it works really well, but it happens to just be called you know, I don't know, the Valiant Knight or whatever. Um, it works really well, but there's a lot of times when we would produce content that just didn't have a good spot for it in, in Galarian. So doing this in advance, knowing that we have to explain where it fits means that we will never have rules options that aren't meant to fit, that, that won't fit with Galarian. So, you know, something like a Beast Gunner is pretty weird. It's an interesting take on guns, but Mike... Mike Sayer, who was the design lead for that book, came to me. I, I wrote the, the Beast Guns for that. He's like, hey, I'm intending to put these in Arcadia, partially because it is a little you know, less concrete what's in there, so it's easier to slip something in there. But also, it means that we don't have to worry about how this affects things in the inner sea region, because it'd be suddenly weird to like, oh, Beast Guns have been around for thousands of years. Why haven't we heard about them? No, well, we can say that they were on this other side of the world and still have them fit in Galarian. It's still part of the Lost Omen setting. It's just that we, we found a good spot for them. So I think keeping the setting material around just does a lot to make sure that everything is cohesive. Rules, options make sense within the world. The world looks like it represents, or the rules, options look like they represent the world that we're trying to present. Uh, and it, it, I think it's better for it in, in the end, everything better is, is better overall because of, of making sure that they map and work well together. So what would you say would be your favorite area that you've worked on in Galarian? In Galarian? Well, I mean, I'm going to say Arcadia because it's, it is uncharted territory, but I'm, and I'm also going to carve a lot of the, the lore there. If we're strictly going by what's in the inner sea, all the Lost Omen stuff that you've seen up through now, uh, I've been a big fan. I like Varissia a lot. It's been around since the beginning. I think Varissia is cool. I like Ustalab a lot. I like the, the gothic kind of horror stuff. Um, 
Numeri is fun. I think I've had the most fun working on, I, I think the Golden Road region is probably the, the, the ones I, I've had most fun with. Uh, I like Assyrian a bit. Uh, all the Jiska stuff is pretty cool. And it's just interesting fantasy that isn't your typical, you know, knights in shining armor and dragons and stuff. My very first adventure path that I, 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 I ran for my group uh, was Legacy of Fire. And I loved what I read through that. That thing was great. Uh, Katapesh was super interesting. And it was just not your typical fantasy. Not that there's any problem with that, but it was, it felt like a breath of fresh air and was a, a really exciting thing to, to get into. Yeah. Well, speaking of adventure paths, you actually have written one uh, at the time of this recording, the first Ruby Phoenix one that we're currently yes. actually playing through. Uh, how has your like working on the Lost Woman's line affected how you came into the project and how you started writing for Tiansha? So I get the benefit of having to know Tiansha, having to know the setting a lot. So it it's much easier for me when it comes to writing to decide, oh, I think I want to have, you know, this, uh, this type of dungeon or an adventure in this kind of area and already know where that could fit really well. Um, I wrote some stuff for uh, upcoming products that I guess I won't say which one it is, but I wrote some upcoming stuff that uh, using the, the knowledge of the setting helped me figure out where I should place uh, some of the material that I was writing. It was, um, nice to like occasionally go back into the setting or, or read some of the setting material and be like oh this is the perfect spot for that kind of thing rather than have to make something new up and that makes it feel all the more connected to the world and is kind of a treat for people who, who do know the setting if you recognize oh that's that place that i read about two three four years ago and they're finally going back to it and using the plot hook that they put there it's kind of a fun thing a little easter egg if you don't know about it it's just like oh cool it's a, a neat place but if you do know about it you get to feel like you're watching finally a, a chance to see the world come to life just a little bit more yeah definitely especially with places like from me goko is so like cool to and interesting yeah. to read on so what's an area i don't know if you can speak to this because you have obviously books that you can't talk about right now but what's an area that you kind of wish got a little bit more attention uh going forward uh Golden Road, I think, will, will, will be great. a place to, to give some attention in the future. Uh, I think if we're talking about anywhere in the world, I think I'd love to see more of Garooned. We see, you know, the, the top part of the Garoon, which is Golden Road. We see Shackles and the Wandi Expanse. And that is like the top third of that continent. If you ever look in the core rulebook, there's a little layout or a little spread that has all the continents, it's very kind of hard to see because it's pretty small, but just like that top third is what you see in the inner sea region. And there's a whole two thirds more of that continent that I think is really interesting. There's a lot of potential there. There's been a lot of hints about what could be there and, or what does exist there. There's been you know, countries name dropped and, and people name dropped, but we don't ever, we haven't had a chance to go there. And I think it'd be amazing to get, to get a chance to go there. Yeah, definitely. Um, what would be like a product that's coming up that you're super looking forward to and would like to see some special attention going to forward? Because I know at the time of recording, we have two Lost Omens books coming mm -hmm. out in the same month. 
Oh boy, I wish some of the ones later in the line were announced already so I could be like that one, that one, that one. Um, for sure, I, I think Monsters and Myth is really interesting. Uh, if you checked out Gods and Magic, and I guess in first edition, if you checked out Face and Galarian uh, and the Heroes of Galarian Player Companion, which are two I worked on, one thing that Eleanor and I have been trying to do is just take peeks at the rest of the world here and there when we can. Uh, Guns and Gears is obviously doing that because we, we look at Arcadia, we look at some of the Tian Sha stuff and other places around the world. But uh, Monsters and Myths specifically, when we outlined that, we made sure to ask for at least one monster from other continents. So there's a, an Arcadian monster, I think maybe two, depending on how you quantify them. Uh, there's some uh, Tian Sha monsters, there's a Kazmaron monster or two. Uh, some Garoon monsters, and, and just getting a chance to peek at uh, those has been really great. So if you want to see just little snippets of the rest of the world, checking out Monsters of Myths will, will definitely be something you want to do for that. Can you give us any insight on some of the monsters we could potentially see? Oh, yeah. In this I mean, there are 20 monsters, uh, which is a nice round number. Uh, that happened to work out pretty well. I don't know if we planned that originally, but um, rather than try to give you a bestiary approach, which is just like, you know, a new monster every page or every two pages or whatever, we wanted each of these monsters to become something that becomes interesting and, and worthy of inclusion in campaigns or starting entire campaigns just to include them in there. So 20 monsters, uh, the highest level one is a level 24 creature. Uh, oh boy a nice little guy by the name of faffin here who claims to be the father of all linorms in the world um and each of these entries has six pages gives you a lot of background and then gives you their stat blocks and then gives you extra material to work with like if faffin here you know is siring uh, a bunch of linorms there's stats for young linorms not like baby linorms but like teenagers that are ready to go and fight uh, which is a great thing if you are not ready to take on a level 24 giant dragon. You can maybe take on the level seven young Linorm and get, get your you know, uh, training in with, with, with those. Uh, there's also like treasures that you can find in their layers and new spells and then an archetype and stuff like that. So uh, there are, like I said, 20 of these. Uh, they go from the crown of the world. There's one called Ainamurin. Uh, there's one in Arcadia, which is like a fire-themed one, big fire-themed lizard. Um, let me see. You know what? Roll a d20 if you got one. I'm sure you can get oh, one Oh, I do. Body. And All I right. will tell you which one you get. If, it, if it's fast in here, I've already talked about it, so I'll give you one other one. Nine. Nine. Okay. So this is Kathogaz, which is, once you know it, you picked like the second highest level one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kathagaz, known as Dance of Disharmony. Uh, if you've heard of Rovagog, you might have heard of the spawn of Rovagog. Uh, there are claims that he's created lots of almost nine destructible creatures to go out and wreak havoc in the world. One of them is the Terrasque, which is in the, the bestiary. Or no, it wasn't in the bestiary. It's it was in, in uh, Lost uh, Ovid 6, Age, right? Age of Ashes. Age of Ashes 6. Yes. It was in the first edition bestiary, my mistake. But uh, along with Zotani the Fire Bleeder, which is another one of the Spawn of Rovagog, but there's five or six really big Spawn of Rovagog. And if you look through the history of Pathfinder, 
all of them have been statted up except Kafka's. So it's like, well, we got to do this one. So we make sure that at least it's been statted up in one of the two editions. And Kathagas is uh, a spawn of Rovagug that sh uh, showed up in Vudra uh, thousands of years ago and was, uh, you know, a pretty bad thing for everyone, <laughs> really. Uh, it's constantly causing like weird sores and gross stuff to sprout on the earth. And, and those like pop like giant pustules, like blisters on, on, on the earth. Oh, and, God, and it's gross. Release insects and stuff and it's terrible so thousands of years ago they killed Kafagaz and chopped up his heart into 101 pieces but they they're kind of like thrumming as if they're still beating so it doesn't mm -hmm. seem like Kafagaz has been fully destroyed uh the the rulers of Vudra each split up the heart 101 pieces and they separated and given them up to the, the different maharajas and stuff and you get to read all this story about it um in monsters of myth and well it, we have the stats for it. if by chance all 101 slivers of that heart come back together and you want to try to destroy kathagas once and for all here's the stats for facing him uh and also stats for the the creatures that spawn out of these pustules uh and there's even a, a ritual for how you could potentially destroy kathagas once and for all if you're willing to to brave that and in addition to all of that information that you would get from most entries, you know, you get the background and the stats. There's also a whole big section that says, if you want to have Kathagas be part of your campaign, whether it's facing Kathagas directly or just kind of having Kathagas's influence in your campaign, here's a whole page that gives you details on it. So for low level campaigns, it says, you know, you might face some of these creatures that spawn out of the, the blisters and then at mid-level you might be working to try to gather the, the the slivers and eventually at high level you'd finally take them on and try to destroy Kathagas once and for all i think there's definitely a lot of cool campaign ideas now running through my head about just yes. destroying all of <laughs> rubagug spawn oh yes uh and that's only the second most powerful one so you'd have like three or four more to face after that oh boy that is certainly an interesting monster. I'm mm -hmm. going to eventually have to throw out a player. I don't know. I, I apologize, future whoever, but you're going to face it. I don't apologize at all. They, they probably <laughs> deserve it. All right. You guys pissed me off enough. I'm just going to throw this at you. <laughs> I can't say, you know, fuck it, a Tarasque anymore. I now I got to throw this thing. <laughs> so not only do you have to do this on a day-to-day -day basis where you're currently where you're designing things you're developing grit so on and so forth but you also do a lot of uh writing projects on the side uh the most recent being the dragonkin versatile heritage which you could find on pathfinder or infinite uh what's your like design approach when it came to giving this new versatile heritage a look so part of the Dragonkin's origins at the very least came about because I was developing Stillman's Ancestry Guide. I, I, that book came out, was pretty popular. I think a lot of people liked it. I love that book. Um, but there were comments I would see here and there from people. It's like, oh, can you play dragons? Are there dragons that you can play in here? Can you do dragon stuff with this? And I know that at least from, from what I know, it doesn't seem like Paisa would want to do playable dragons anytime soon. So I'm like, well, maybe I can just stat them up myself. So I wrote them up originally for my Patreon. 
and seemed to be that people liked him. So I grabbed some of those, put them on my personal blog. And sure enough, people were, were pretty positive to that. And I was like, okay, cool. And when the time came around that Pathfinder Infinite was coming, I'm like, well, what do I have that I could put on there? What would be easy to do? I can just copy paste my Dragonkin uh, that I originally put on my blog, clean it up a bit, add some extra feats, add some extra cool stuff that you can do and make it a product. And there it is. Uh, but I, I think a lot of people, even back in the third edition days, back before Pathfinder first edition, uh, back in D&D you know, 3, 3.5, <laughs> uh, there was a half dragon template that I think a lot of people really liked. They liked the idea of being like, oh, cool, I can turn into a dragon or I can grow wings or claws and stuff. There's a dragon disciple prestige class, which is now a dragon disciple archetype. It just people love dragon stuff. And it's like, well, if Paizo is not going to be doing that, I think it's fine if I do it. And it, putting it on infinite means I, I, you know, I'm less concerned that like anyone is like, oh, well, you know, I can't believe you did that as a designer or someone that works at, at, at Paizo. It's like, well, it's on infinite, you know, if Paizo really wants it, they can decide to snatch it up and, and do something with it themselves. So it's there for people who want to play it. If you want to just check out the free version, I always have it on my blog, but I think having art and extra setting material, I, I talk about how they fit in with Valerian, really does help for role-playing reasons. I think knowing what your character might look like does, does a, a big part in helping come up with those ideas and obviously conceptualize what you want to be doing in role-playing sessions. So why did you bake it a versatile heritage rather than a full-on ancestry sort of like how D&D 5th edition has their dragonborn being a full ancestry rather than I think their new lineages. I don't really pay attention to that side. Uh, part of it is because D&D has dragonborn. I didn't want people just saying, oh, you've just copied dragonborn and brought him over. Um, I love dragonborn. I, I started playing D&D in 3.5, but I didn't start GMing really seriously until 4th edition came out. So I, I learned dragonborn and all the stuff that came with 4th E um so they're great i just thought it'd be more interesting for people to be able to grab as much dragon stuff as they want and then still be an elf or still be a dwarf or whatever um because i mentioned the the half dragon template that used to be a thing was really i think the more popular thing that people were doing i don't think people were wanting to play dragons or, or drakes or whatever they were wanting to play someone that had that power of a dragon without giving up some of their identity to just be like i'm all dragon and i think that's that's why i went for it also because as a versatile heritage i think there were a lot more examples of existent versatile heritages at the time with the ancestry guide and stuff that worked really well for a lot of the things i wanted them to be able to do so i could be like oh well this feat already exists i'll just copy it and tweak some of the language and mechanics to make it more dragon-like then have to do that with fewer examples of a full-on ancestry that i think would map as easily so something like the ifrit uh fire stuff and elemental stuff and later you know the kunrasu having the armor heritage and stuff there's, there's a lot of stuff that i think worked easier to explain as a versatile heritage than just a full-on ancestry. Definitely. I, I also just think the Kurnasu is just a weird ancestry general. Really cool, <laughs> but weird. Yes, by design. <laughs> so, I mean, if you think it's weird, I think we've done our job right. 
it was certainly interesting to see what all their press releases were coming out and only having the image and little to no other context for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the fun things of the job is getting to tease things like that. So you're like, here's a picture, figure out what that is. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> or, or what we did with the Grand Bazaar and say, there's an ancestry coming. We're not going to tell you what it is. See you in six months. I legit forgot about the ancestry being in there. And so when people were getting their early releases, they were like, guys, can we talk about the secret that's in uh, Grand Bazaar? I was just like, what secret? <laughs> Until I got the PDF, I was just like, what the hell's a poppet? <laughs> oh, yeah, it definitely. It's a fun surprise always. Mm-hmm. So what would be some advice that you'd like to give people trying to get into the whole TTRPG industry? So one thing I've told plenty of people is just start writing stuff. Part of the things that I look for when it comes time to take on new authors and stuff is writing samples to show that you know the game and the setting and stuff. So if you don't have any samples to present, then you're not going to get work, at least for me, and most likely not from anyone else. There's there's no way to prove that you can at least do the stuff that you say you want to do or or the the game that needs you to do. Uh, So start a blog. There's a million different ways to start a free blog at this point or throw them on Reddit, something I think there's like a Pathfinder Creations subreddit now where people are just homebrewing stuff uh, on there. And and write stuff, write, you know, fiction, write new setting stuff that you'd like to see, write new rules, whatever it is that you want to write, write that. And then take what you've written and make sure it looks as much as it can it looks uh, as similar as it can to the stuff that's in the rule books. So if you want to write a new spell, make sure it's bolded in the same spots, make sure it's got the same formatting and, and, and everything. There's, if you can, you know, try to put a line where there's lines across to separate stuff, make it look as much as, as it can as the stuff that's in the original books, because showing that you can do that shows that you're paying attention to where bolds are and the formatting and styles, and it'll be one less, work to to build you up to to understand that and to shows that you kind of know the game in and out beyond just like oh well i know what this feat does and i know what i get at eighth level or whatever uh that's very important and do that for whatever game you want if you don't want to write for pathfinder if you want to go write for dnd great do that same stuff figure out how they format their spells how they format their stat blocks how they present their setting material try to copy it as much as possible because one, you're going to learn stuff along the way. You're going to be like, oh, they keep bolding this. I, I you know, didn't realize that they always italicize spells when they mention them in text until I started paying attention to that. Stuff like, you know, random details like that will help out a lot and prove that you're someone that can follow a style guide, someone that can follow the directions that are necessary to, to make the game. So do that with whatever game you want. Put them somewhere. And then when the time comes that you want to try to get some work uh, you can then say, hey, if you want to see some samples of what I've written, here's my blog. You might be able to download them and put them into a nice little product, uh, nice little one-page PDF or something to show some samples and stuff. Uh, and that will be your first step. You might not get work directly with Paizo. You might not get work with Wizards right away. But you can turn around and try to get work with some of the third parties out there, like uh, Rogue Genius Games, Everybody Games, Legendary Games is also pretty good. Cobalt Press is doing a lot of D&D stuff. Um, and if that doesn't work, you can always throw it on Pathfinder Infinite. You can throw it up on DM's Guild. 
and show that like, hey, I've, I've written this. You can get feedback from people that way as well. You know, if, if you write a new magic item, they might tell you, hey, I think this magic item is cool, except it should be you know, only once per day instead of once per week or something, you know, stuff like that. You'll, you'll, you'll get to learn a lot of, from, from feedback and from other people looking at it. And then also having it up there can get you an extra couple bucks. That's not too bad. Uh, and it's another thing that you can throw onto a portfolio that you can share with people when you are looking for work professionally. Yeah, definitely. I think that Pathfinder Infinite has definitely gotten a lot more attention uh, recently. And I think just it's easier to get your name out there with yeah. just with everyone else. Cause you know, my stuff is currently up there with your stuff and you know, it's definitely cool. So one of the recent things that at the time of recording that you teased about is a potential new class <laughs> yes. with a third party. Yes. What, what is this new class? I gotta know. Um, wow. You are just on top of the news, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> kind of my job at this point. Yes. It's 90% Twitter, 10% actually doing college homework. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that, so if you know Owen Casey Stevens, he used to work at Paizo, used to work at Wizards, uh, has been around in the industry for quite a while, and he has his own third-party imprint called Rogue Genius Games. Rogue Genius has been around for a while and had made a lot of third-party stuff for first edition. One of these was a pair of classes uh, in, in the 1E days called the Time Thief and the Time Warden which are, wouldn't you know it, time manipulation related um, classes. I just thought they were Doctor Who spawn-offs. Uh, no, <laughs> um, it would be like the time doctor, I guess, the time physician uh, <laughs> for that. Um, the, the time thief, if you've ever played the older, not, not the oldest oldest, but like the early 2000s to mid uh, 2010s uh, Prince of Persia games, were very much about time travel he had the sands of time he had the uh, a, a special dagger that he would use to like rewind time which is a fun little thing it's a platforming game you jump off a ledge accidentally miss and and you know get killed you can rewind time and try again and the time thief was very much that idea and time warden was using some of those ideas but adding magic to it and he's been asking me for a while uh since even before pathfinder second edition had come out hey do you want to convert these over to 2e and I keep saying yes. I keep failing. Him. <laughs> uh, I keep running out of time or, or, or my schedule not working out. But I've recently cleared up a lot of freelancing stuff. I have my plate designated entirely for Time Thief, Time Warden. And I'm going to be converting that for, for second edition. So there's going to be a time-related class. I don't know what the time, what it's going to be called, time, who knows. Um, that's going to be a single class rather than multiple classes. And it's probably going to have different sub classes, sub paths or whatever you want to call them, uh, much like rogue rackets and stuff, where you choose to be more of the infiltrate skill time thief style, be more magic time warden style, or you might be more combat focused time knight instead and get to do cool stuff like rewind time and, and re do some rerolls on stuff or use your magic to you know haste people haste is a time spell when you think about it they move mm -hmm. faster through time it just gets to be flavored in different ways haste and slow and time stop you'll, you'll get to do some of the cool magic stuff with this class and uh well i'm starting to 
put that to paper. I'm, I'm getting that started. I've been writing a little bit here and there. So I'm going to premiere some of the details on my blog here in the coming weeks in the intent to get feedback from people and eventually create a playtest product for this class so people can check out what the, the class, see what they like, give us feedback, and eventually give it a full release on Pathfinder Infinite. That just sounds awesome. Uh, <laughs> I currently have uh, 40 ways to build Tracer going through my head um, yeah. using this class. I'm super excited to see exactly where this goes because mm -hmm. I know Starfinder is also releasing Precog in the next month or so. So it'd be definitely interesting to see more time-based stuff enter like the piezosphere, I guess is a way to call it. Sure. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's a difficult thing to work on. So of course, the first time I'm ever trying to make a brand new class all on my own, I've chosen the most difficult thing ever, time travel. So it, it'll be an interesting experiment <laughs> going forward. If there's not a way to just throw yourself into the deep end, I don't know what that would look like at this point. I, I've been thinking of doing classes on my own for my Patreon for several months now, actually. Um, but I've decided, no, I'm going to focus on this class first, but get to Owen and make up for the two years I've been <laughs> keeping him waiting <laughs> on this. Uh, and then hopefully use the lessons I learned here, both to improve it, you know, in a post play test uh, world, and then use that to uh, use that same knowledge to make my own classes in the future. I, I'd love to I have ideas for kind of parallels to the champion, you know, the champion being divine focused, really tough uh, character class that, you know, uses armor and shields and stuff. And I think you could probably do something like that for primal and for arcane and for occult and probably have wouldn't, unique classes on each of them. Wouldn't arcane just be Magus at that point? No, Magus is about offense. I would want an oh. offensive one. So I very I much want, like a Gandalf kind of like situation. I want, I want basically, so the, the champions thing is that they can get legendary armor, right? Uh, eventually. So I think a class that is primal and then gets legendary armor and is really good at defense, but defends people in a different way than Paladin does. And the same with the uh, arcane one and the occult one causes, it ma makes it more difficult for people to get hurt or, or themselves to get hurt. Um, would be interesting ways to, to do that. Who knows? I mean, that's me proposing. I got three more classes, uh, <laughs> you know, ready to go after this, and we'll see if I can even get one more out there. But I, I think there's ways to express the mechanics of defending people and stopping attacks and preventing enemies uh, from attacking or hurting people that aren't the way that the champion does it and still have interesting classes that feel unique. Because it I think it could be very possible that I, I start working on these and it's like, oh, this just feels like champion with a new reaction, right? Um, but I think there's ways to make that different. Uh, partially inspired with, with, with fourth edition D&D, if, if you ever played that, the fighter had like a, a specific mechanic for keeping enemies focused on them compared to the paladin, compared to the warden. So that there, I think, are ways to do that uh, in, and keep four unique flavors, four unique feels for the classes. Yeah, that's definitely going to be interesting with just seeing how different like traditions interact with each other. Because mm -hmm. one of my favorite things about like Secrets of Magic was reading about how different casters approach different traditions. So yeah. like the cleric, I loved reading the cleric just absolutely shit talking the wizard uh, entry. That was one of my favorite things. 
Um, and then obviously my favorite just being the primal. Uh, I don't know whoever wrote the primal section for it, but it was just like, guys, we're all good here and we just love <laughs> the earth. I, it definitely gave me off a Stoder vibe and I just loved it. Yeah. So where is the best place for people to find your work? Luckily, I've made it very easy to find all the links to everywhere else where I'm doing stuff. If you go to luisloza.com, that's my homepage. It has links to my Patreon, it has links to my Twitter if you want to follow that for goofiness or the occasional teases on stuff. Um, it has my blog, which is where I release some of this content. So you can find the Rabbit Folk Ancestry, you can find Dragon Kin Ancestry and a bunch of other stuff I've written up on there for free. You know, you can just go get Dragon Kin for free now if you really wanted to. And it also has links to some of the products that I have for sale uh, if you want the nice fancy version with art and stuff. Um, so lisaloza.com is kind of your hub for all the things that I make and try to get you to look at and, and read and buy and stuff. Awesome. And if there was one final message that mm -hmm. you'd like the viewers to end off on, what would that message be? Oh boy, this is the most open-ended question <laughs> ever. Um, I think I'm going to relate it to RPGs and stuff and just say, your games can be whatever you want them to be if you're having fun if you're enjoying yourself or if you're liking the story you're telling you know there are some stories that aren't necessarily fun or exciting but are still interesting to tell or still be part of then you're doing it right you know you're playing the game right you're, you're being part of this this whole thing uh, in, in the correct ways if you're enjoying yourself no one else is getting hurt and no one else is and everyone else is in in on 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 it and, and willing to come along then and you're, you're enjoying the game the correct way the way that you want I love it. And now for a surprise question that we ask yeah. all of our guests when they come on here. So we started this tradition back in the third episode of us recording, and it started off as a joke, but yeah. it's it's evolved. If you could rename any element on the periodic table, what would you rename it and what would it be to? Oh, boy. Um I think I don't like a lot of the really newer ones. So there's a lot of the elements that are artificially created in labs because uh, science doesn't <laughs> know when to quit sometimes. So there's like americium and Einsteinium and stuff. And those are all like, come on, figure out a cool name. Like <laughs> even like something like boron is like a weird name, but it, it's unique. It doesn't sound like someone just looked around and it's like, oh, we like uh einstein or we like america let's just tag that name on so i think taking any of those and renaming them to like i don't know hantonium or halpatine or you know just some more elemental sounding name would be great don't just steal some some existing name and tack on a cm or an em to it to make a new element just be a little more creative go go dig around some latin and stuff and figure out a cool name for it um, rather than just being like, oh, it's Einstein's element. It's so go. funny. No Nat Ones, actually, we interviewed them, renamed <laughs> Einstein Stadium to uh, No Nat Canium. It's just <laughs> no, so that's nice just as bad. <laughs> That's just as bad. That's just another name and adding elemental feeling sound to the end of it. It should be like, uh, no, I don't, no, that, that <laughs> I'm going to rename No Nats element is what i'm going to rename it and it's now hantonium there we go that sounds like a an element so 
I've undone yeah. his name. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Luis, for coming on and talking with me. Um, sure. It's been absolutely a blast. And for everyone else out there, thank you for watching. And uh, I'll see you at the next video. Bye.